This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The federal government has run very large budget deficits for the last few years, but the picture in the states has been quite different. COVID was supposed to bring a new round of state and local government budget crises, but incomes and tax revenues held up much better than expected, and the federal government gave generous aid to states and localities that combined to produce huge budget surpluses, surpluses in every state. But now that's turning again. Tax receipts are slowing, in part because so many states, red and blue, cut taxes in the pandemic. Public employees are demanding raises, often not unreasonably, given how short-staffed governments are and how tight the labor market is. And deficits are back, in some cases, yawning ones, $32 billion in California right now, for example. And states must deal with those budget gaps at a time when many categories of government services are struggling and there are related demands to spend more money on things like education and policing. There are also infrastructure needs that are getting more expensive with high interest rates and with tight labor markets. It's all a very tough pickle. To talk about that today, I'm joined by David Schleicher. David is a professor of law at Yale Law School. He's written a new book about state and local budget crises called In a Bad State. It's about how the federal government should respond when localities and states get into fiscal trouble. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So what's the nature of the financial problem in state and local governments right now? Because a lot of your book is about solutions to insolvency. It doesn't look to me like we're at the brink of insolvency in any states or any major localities, at least not yet. Yeah, no, the nature of the problem right now is that we've been in this period coming up to now in which the enormous amount of federal aid and, as you noted, the economic conditions left states having flush budgets for a while. And it it would have been a very good time to address some of their long-term structural problems uh, that predated the pandemic, you know, things like plowing budget deficits, hiding budget deficits in underfunded pensions or not maintaining uh, public infrastructure. But the federal government, when it gave aid, didn't insist on any fiscal retrenchment or kind of change in policy. And while some states were quite responsible during this, these flush periods, other states were not. And uh, that should to be expected for two reasons. One is that you know, being responsible stinks. Um, <laughs> and then secondly, that uh, the federal aid may have created some reasonable beliefs that the federal aid was going to continue. But we're now seeing the turning of the worm. It's not merely economic situations, but it's also you know, uh, Biden announced that he might even be willing to accept pulling back some unspent ARP money, federal aid to states money um, as part of a debt limit deal. And that kind of signal, even though that money itself is not so important, it signals the end of this enormous period of federal largesse, kind of somewhat unprecedented federal direct aid to states, non-programmatic. Yeah. And so the the way states are supposed to deal with these sorts of vicissitudes in their revenues. States are, in theory, not supposed to run budget deficits for their operations. They can borrow money to spend on capital to build roads and bridges and that sort of thing. They are, they are, every state except Vermont is required by its constitution to balance its budget every year. And Vermont ordinarily does so, even though it's not explicitly required to. And so when you have a good period like happened for states during the pandemic, the sort of perversely good fiscal period, states are supposed to sock that money away in rainy day funds, especially when it looks like the swings in the revenues have been crazy. And I I, I know you say it's, you know, they may have expected that aid was going to go on forever. I don't know why the aid would have gone on forever. The pandemic was going to end. There wasn't going to be a democratic administration forever. And so the the sort of the, the orthodox thing to do if you ran a state government at that time 
time was you were supposed to put the money in a rainy day fund or you're supposed to put it in your pension fund or you were supposed to spend it on, you know, on durable infrastructure investments. Did we see states doing those things? Yeah, well, many states did. And rainy day funds are at all time highs. So it's not that there, there's no savings in states and there's just a lot of variation. The big challenge when huge amount of money come into states is whether they create programs that will be hard to cut in the future. So you see this with um, uh, creating spending programs that then you then have employees and firing employees is hard. And sometimes you have contractual obligations that last longer. And also tax cuts are really hard. I mean, to reverse, especially if, the, again, the economic situation changes. The federal aid in under the ARP attempted to address this a little, which it created a limit on using ARP money specifically for tax cuts. ARP, Court- this was the big law right at the beginning of the Biden administration that had about $2 trillion in spending, including hundreds of billions of dollars for states and localities. Far more than states needed to plug their budget deficits. Yeah. It, was an, it was just an enormous dump of money. Um, mm. Sorry for the jargon. Um, no, that's fine. And states, the, that law said you couldn't use that money for tax cuts, but that actually got held up in court. And also there was other money coming in. It wasn't that effective a limitation. And so the question going forward, this can be very hard to know right now, is what programs and tax policies were created during the boom times, they're going to be really hard to change going forward. Also, belatedly, there are going to be new types of shocks that mean new types of governments uh, are going to face problems. So the big one that everyone's talked about is transit agencies, which have lost an enormous amount of ridership. And that is harming them fiscally in a ways that, you know, are where you can't really plan for or it's hard to plan for. Um, and relatedly, downtowns, which are going to lose a huge amount of commercial property tax revenue. My sense is that one of the ways states and localities have been managing these budget pressures, in some cases unintentionally managing them this way, is through reductions in, in services. I mean, you know, you had cutbacks in transit schedules during the pandemic because you had less commuting. That also saves money to run the trains less frequently. States are not hitting their hiring targets for teachers and police, and it saves money when you're understaffed. But all of that means crappy service quality. Uh, and especially at a time when you have cities that are struggling in certain non-financial ways and trying to, you know, reassert that, you know, people should come back here and feel safe and feel that it's necessary to go into the office. It seems like the, you know, one thing that you might do as part of those strategies is try to spend more on those sorts of services to improve their quality exactly at a time when there's there's this shortage now. And so you, part of the way that they're dealing with the fact that they cut taxes, they establish these new programs, is that they're continuing to have, you know, lower service frequencies on transit, for example. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, I think that's absolutely right, that, 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 that merely not hiring people is a way that a governor, mostly or an executive, can avoid uh, some of the fiscal problems created by their legislatures. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's it's true, it, but it, it's also unfortunate. On the other hand, that, you know, declining service quality is the what you have to do in order to, or something you have to cut somewhere. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and many, and particularly because so many of the costs are fixed or at least substantially fixed, when you don't save for your pension fund, you can't not pay your pension fund. That's a default. Um, Those are contract rights um, uh, and they're protected in state constitutions. Um, Similarly, lots of other things can't really be cut in the short and medium run. And so that you end up skimping on things that people really want. And so the, some of the kind of, particularly for those jurisdictions that were really heavily in debt, your Illinois and your New Jersey's and what have you. The um, cutting services is really the only tool other than, you know, raising taxes. Don't you then 
get a, the potential for a vicious cycle there. I mean, you know, the, you have net outflows from these states, from Illinois, from New York, from California. And you can point to a lot of different reasons for that. You know, you have extremely high housing costs in New York and California. You have high tax rates. Um, the weather is warmer down south. You know, a lot of people, they had big life changes due to the pandemic, and it made it possible for them to move. A lot of the political sense here around in New York is that we are losing out to Florida even more than before for a combination of those reasons. Also, I mean, during the high pandemic, there was a strong sense of, you know, some people wanted to go down to Florida for, for you know, fewer restrictions. For COVID uh, vacation. Yeah, exactly. You could pretend and, that COVID wasn't happening, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so to what extent are we seeing those regional effects? I, I assume that, you know, places like Miami that have been seeing this population influx, there must be certain fiscal benefits from that that are making them e it easier for them to manage these issues. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're seeing wide variation in the cost of these things. Now, why people are leaving your New Yorks and your Chicagos, whatever, is obvious, as you noted, uh, it's multifaceted. I think the housing costs are probably, most people think of as the largest fa of all these factors. But it is also surely the case that, you know, like, it is nice to not walk through, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, it would be really nice to not walk through garbage all of the time. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and uh, what the theory would be that what the government should be doing in these periods is, um, as they're cutting, seeking efficiencies. And it's not hard to imagine efficiencies. The cost of government in New York is just much higher than anywhere else. Um, and that's traditionally the explanation economists give for why that's the case is that there's just less exit pressure in New York. Less exit pressure? What do you mean by that? Fewer people leave um, because being in New York is so great generally as a social matter, right? Mm -hmm. So you see um, people that you see higher cost of government in places that are just nice generally. So Malibu has an extraordinarily high cost of government. And why is that? Well, Malibu is great. <laughs> people don't leave. And so, and so, and so like, like if the government gets 10% worse, are you really going to leave your gorgeous house in Malibu? No, not probably not. But in theory, what you'd like to see is uh, governments responding to this increased pressure, understanding their fiscal limits by making government work a little better. You know, you could have one rather than two train operators on mm -hmm. the New York City subway. You could have, um, I don't know, somehow spend less than an order of magnitude. You know, the, the, different, the, the difference between building subways in New York and building subways in Paris is an order of magnitude. Like, maybe we could fix that. Um, and you'd imagine that political pressure would emerge, but that takes time and doesn't necessarily happen. Is it, though? I mean, when we talk specifically about the transit agencies, I sort of see three conversations about what to do about the budget caps. One is that the state governments should just throw ever more money into the agencies. They're having a fight about this right now in California. Here in New York, there's another, they've done another increase in the, I forget the, what the acronym stands for, but there's like a separate income tax in the MTA region on top of the state income tax and the city income tax. Now we're going to pay more of that. You can shovel more money into the agencies. You can reduce service levels, and, so, and a certain amount of that has been done across the country. Um, and you can postpone capital projects that you were going to do. I haven't seen any, you know, real demonstrations of we found a way to do this thing cheaper, whether that's on the capital side or the operating side. They, they still have two people driving the trains in the New York City subway, which is extremely unusual globally. Yeah, I mean, you haven't seen it. And oh, I mean, it's a tough problem. A lot of their costs are fixed, like the cost of maintaining the subway system just is what is as big as it is, even if we don't grow it. And the cost of maintaining it remains high. And a lot of their other costs are in pensions for retired workers, which, you, again, you can't cut. The political difficulty of getting efficiencies is real, and it would require a type of political leadership to really push for this. And it would probably mean, in the case of New York City, it would probably mean a strike at some point and fighting that fight. And do people have the stomach for that kind of thing? But I mean, in the medium run, 
um, you're either going to see a lot more money shoveled in. And there's going to be a lot of questions about who should shovel in money. In New York, the big question is, should the state shovel in the money or should the city shovel in the money? You're also going to see, I think, um, jurisdictions like that question will be put fiscal pressure on whoever the government that is required. Is it going to be the state government? If it's the city government, the city government has lots of its own fiscal problems. Um, you see this in uh, in other jurisdictions as well. And you can imagine kind of these competitive pressures creating really, real big difficulties, particularly in a, like the Chicago region or uh, San Francisco. Yeah, right. I, I'm I'm interested in the distinction here between Chicago and New York because I mean the the other added pressure that these big cities have is a big part of their tax base is commercial real estate and these big office buildings that are just not worth what they were worth before the pandemic. The rents are going to be persistently lower and there's going to be less revenue from that. However, at least in New York, you know, even at some lower rent base, New York is an extremely desirable place to do business and you'll have people doing business in Midtown. And it's just that, you know, the rent on their office space might be $50 a square foot instead of $100 a square foot for the year. Chicago, I worry a lot about, Matt Iglesias has been writing a lot about this, that Chicago does not have the sort of buffer that New York has, where it's just, you know, the price of New York got run up so much, the price can run back down while New York stays really busy and crowded and economically productive. If you have Chicago, you had a teacher strike, you've had declining service quality and policing and, you know, a crime wave, and you have uh, d- declining service quality in education and, you know, reduced frequency on transit. What is it that causes people to want to come into Chicago, and you have a new mayor there who basically thinks they can tax their way out of the crisis that they have there, which I think you can do in New York, it's not really clear to me that you can do that in Chicago. No, and I mean, the problems are even a little more, even, I mean, you, you, you cast them as severe, but the physical problems are even more severe than that. So Chicago is probably our most heavily indebted most big city when you count in pension and other, other types. Of, but it's also in one of our most indebted counties, Cook County. It has uh, one of our most indebted transit districts, and it uh, and there are a bunch of other overlapping governments. And then it's in one of our most heavily indebted states. Um, and so you have this kind of on conflict among all of these governments that are all going to want to be uh, you know, squeezing juice from the same stone. And it's, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it is quite challenging. Now, right this minute, they're all still kind of fine. Um, but we're not we're getting close to a situation where they're going to have to make some really difficult choices. And, you know, you know, it's uh, Chicago has has some real structural problems. Now, I mean, there's a little bit. I mean, you want to get like a like if you want like a silver lining in that cloud. The prices and demand for office space in Chicago were very high themselves in the inner ring loop. It's a, while there's lots of things that are not in demand in Chicago, there's still quite potentially those the same dynamic you described in New York could happen in the parts of Chicago, mm-hmm. whereas other parts of Chicago are don't have a dynamic that's much more like your Cleveland's or St. Louis's or whatever. Um, and so there's some dip, Chicago's a big place. There's a lot of different uh, things next to one another. Can we talk about how state and municipal governments should be using debt? Because I think, you know, the Chicago, and w- which we can get into a little bit more, is sort of a what not to do example. But it is important for these governments to be able to borrow. They, I mean, they, you know, the, there's all sorts of things that we rely on that a key part of the financing is that mun- municipalities and states go out and they borrow money. Yeah, the old joke about the federal government is that it's an insurance company with an army. And if you can touch something in the mar- whether it's an employee or a thing, it is built by a state and local government. The federal government will provide fiscal support uh, and both support for borrowing and just direct money. Um, but um, uh, most of the things you rely on in your everyday life are 
uh, from government are state, provided by state and local governments, and it's almost all infrastructure. And that's a structural fact about America that's been true forever. So there was a debate in very early in American history, should the federal government be heavily involved in building infrastructure? And it realized, and there's a huge debate about it, and all the famous characters that you might, uh, you know from your, uh, from, from your high school history classes were involved in this debate. And one of the problems that emerged was that whenever America tried to build in, uh, big infrastructure projects, it devolved into pork for every district in Congress. That the, that was a dynamic that, uh, political scientist Barry Weingast called distributive politics. But it's mm-hmm. the basic idea is that because it, America has districted legislatures, projects get split among every. And as a result, Congress acknowledged very early on that it was not going to be in the business of building major infrastructure projects, either delivering them or kind of choosing them. Sometimes they fund things. We have an infrastructure bill. But um, most of the money for infrastructure gets paid for by states and cities, um, gets built directly by states and and mostly paid for by states and cities. And for them to do so, they need to be able to borrow. And again, and have always needed to borrow. Every bit of infrastructure that you think of in America has relied on our unbelievably rich uh, and successful municipal bond market from the Erie Canal to the Second Avenue subway. Um, Mm -hmm. In theory, the idea of state and local governments borrowing is that they're supposed to be borrowing to build capital projects, the same way that you would borrow to buy a house. You're going to live in a house for a number of years, and you want to pay for it each year you live in it. And the idea is that each user of a bridge or a water system or whatever, each year's users should pay a little bit for it. In recent years, though, we've seen a huge flow of debt away from municipal debt, like borrowing to build capital projects, um, and towards other forms of things you can think of as being like debt, but not actual bonds to support hmm. uh, infrastructure projects. The most prominent of these are is unfunded pensions. And again, this is like debt in that you have a requirement to pay them in the future. You've agreed with workers and the state constitutions say these are contracts that you can't break. But unlike a bridge, there's no thing you can touch. It's just the fire services or police services or teacher services that you got in the past. To, to lay that out for people, because I think part of the reason that states get into trouble for the, with this is that this is not an intuitive concept for people. That basically, if you have a teacher and they're, you know, they have a salary of $80,000 a year and they have a health plan, you know, for, you know, dual coverage and that costs... 14 grand or whatever it is. And then every year they work, they're acquiring pension credits. And it means that, you know, the longer they work there, the more money they're going to get every year in retirement. If that were a 401k plan, you'd actually have have to be socking money into that plan right now and they would draw it out later. Instead, you're making a promise to pay and the actual payments will flow out of the government far in the future, but you're really incurring that expense now. You've made the promise now, you've received their labor in exchange for the promise now, and you need to account for that this year. And there's a number of issues, both with the way that this is accounted for and with the way the law is around it, the politics are around it. But the upshot is that in in many states, and some states are worse offenders on this than others, they'll make the promise and they won't put the money away or they won't put enough of the money away. And it's basically borrowing from future taxpayers. You're saying, I'm going to acquire this labor from this teacher now, uh, and I'm going to send the bill to a taxpayer in 2040. Um, And so these these are implicit liabilities that build up on state balance sheets. They affect states' ability to borrow because the people who are buying the bonds, they, they look and they see what the demands are going to be on the state and all these pension payments they're going to have to make in the future. And this has become a particular problem in, in Illinois, New Jersey, Kentucky. There are a few states that have been especially bad offenders on this. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And it's um, one of the reasons you see this is that it's confusing. But another reason you see this is that states generally have constitutional limits on how much they can borrow. And they're, sometimes they're procedural, like they have to go to a public vote. And most people have voted in a bond election before. If you live in a town, you've voted, should we borrow $8 million to build a swimming pool or something? But not not saving for your pensions doesn't count towards your debt limits. And so this creates a big incentive for governments to underfund in their underfund the pension system as a way to hide their budget deficits as opposed to borrowing, which often they can't borrow to cover operating expenses, but also it's not subject to the same limits. And it had a really destructive effect across a number of dimensions. So one of the things we should have expected to see in the post-Great Recession period, when unemployment was high but interest rates were really low, is state and local government should have been borrowing a lot to build a lot. That would have been a great time to build a lot of stuff. Because again, labor was available, the exact opposite of the dynamic we see now. Labor right. was available and borrowing was cheap. Um, and uh, instead of their borrowing capacity going towards investing in stuff, their borrowing capacity went towards not paying, uh, kind of borrowing to, to pay for the c- current services. Right. Um, and that is, you know, if you just look back at the last 10 years and ask yourself, what are the great public infrastructure projects? of the recent past, you're going to find yourself scratching your head. Yeah, um, and it's because of this dynamic. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, what, what little we did get, the Second Avenue subway built during that period, the most expensive subway in, in the world, essentially. It's actually, the, technically, it's the second most expensive subway. The most expensive subway is Eastside Access, um, uh, which is... Uh, which is it, it, also in Manhattan. Also in Manhattan. It's um, that one, which, again captures a little bit of the craziness of governance in New York. It's built underneath Grand Central. It's one of the craziest infrastructure projects you will ever see in your in your life. Um, it started uh, as Aldamato's pet project. Yeah. And it's, you know, finally, more than 25 years after Aldamato left the Senate, it's finally open. It's finally, it's, um, but um, also for its worth, if you're, if you're curious what's in, what's in third place, uh-huh. you're not gonna be surprised. It's the seven train extension into Hudson Yards. Also in Manhattan. Also in Manhattan. Those yes. are the three most expensive. Um, uh, so yeah, but again, you should be asking yourself like what has, we, how has government transformed the phys- your physical experience? And you know, it hasn't. And a large reason why is because it was plowing its debts into not, you know, not current services basically. What is the pension situation looking like right now? I, I mean, uh, back during the Great Recession, I personally was writing a lot about that. And that was like a, the sort of one of the really core focuses of the fiscal problems in states. And part of the problem then was that low interest rates were actually making the pension benefits effectively more expensive to provide. It's, it's, it's more expensive to make promises far in the future when interest rates are low. Has that situation actually been helped by all this inf- inflation and, and higher interest rates? Oh, for sure. It's been helped. I mean, it's um, it's it's been helped in a couple of ways. One is that the flush times jurisdictions were making their payments. So it's you can see you actually one of my favorites is you see New Jersey will issue press release that say we made our annual contribution to pensions. <laughs> it's like it's like issuing a press release that you made your credit yeah. card payments for the year. It's it's not a given in New Jersey. It, it almost never happens. Um, it's a, so it's a real a real victory actually. Um, but you saw both kind of structural pressures, which is when the market was doing very well, that was helping pension funds, and then inflation has a habit; it normally does that. Um, also, you saw some jurisdictions doing plowing a lot of their kind of boom era gains. So Connecticut is probably the, the number one example of this. Connecticut, due to some structural political things in their legislature and also due to a very interesting legal mechanism they created to ensure that volatile revenues don't get spent in the short run, ended up putting a huge amount of money into their pension fund. And now, 
Connecticut started off in a really rough place on this front. Connecticut basically didn't save for its pensions for the first 50 years of its pension system at all. Just assumed that, like, you would keep getting madmen moving to Connecticut and there would never be any need (laughs) to pay any for anything. But, um, you know, eventually that didn't work out. But now they've really they've really been maybe the the probably the fiscal bright spot of kind of responsible stewardship during the period. Well, so that that's a piece of good news then if we have, you know, all of these problems with service insufficiency and with these current budget deficits uh, emerging, at least we're not having the same big rerun of the pension problems that we were having last time. Well, just the question is how much we fix the problem right. rather, you know, um, and uh, we've made depending on what jurisdiction we've made some progress into it. And you've done it a couple other ways. You've seen uh, creations of new classes of employees that get less pensions. So again, there's been some progress across all dimensions, right? So that's what a boom does, is that even if you're a little irresponsible during the boom, like it's way better to be coming off a boom than to be in a long period of of bust. Um, But um, the question is, how well did you do? And I think you're going to, I mean, the old, which the Warren Buffett line, like when the tide comes in, you see who wasn't wearing their swimsuit. We're right. going to see, we're going to see a little bit of that with respect to states, which there's just a very varied performance. So what are you watching for in states for, first over the next couple of years when we're, you know, again, we don't have insolvencies on, on, on the horizon, at least not yet. Um, are, are we seeing states making good moves to be able to manage through these budget crises while maintaining quality government services such that people will kind of continue to want to live and do business in states? Again, it's very varied. I mean, so, so again, who's doing well? So again, I, I mean, I, the, I mean, I'd say the places that are allowing growth are doing well because that's just you know it's you know it's it's Austin doesn't have fiscal problems because it's just getting so many new people and so much new property tax revenue, and then you see jurisdictions of the Connecticut sort that did well during the pandemic in terms of saving, and so they're in structurally slightly better space. So those would be the ones that I think of as like a kind of happy stories um, that are well positioned. I mean, again, America is a big country with lots of, I mean, it has tens of thousands of local governments um, and 50 states. You should expect to see variation. Um, mm. But I, I think that there are real worries come in this next period that you're going to see in um, jurisdictions that assumed the good times were going to keep rolling. And so, again, it's a big country with lots of little governments. Uh, one of the things that during busts is that jurisdictions are just structurally different. It's not necessarily the poorest jurisdiction. So we went through the Detroit bankruptcy, and Detroit was a very poor city, um, but it's not as poor as Brownsville, Texas. And so right. it's, you know, a lot of this turns on choices as well yeah. as kind of structural forces. It's places that got, that got overstretched with, with liabilities they could no longer serve, which is not necessarily the, the poorest places. Yeah. And, 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 and shrinking places have a particular difficulty, right? Because you build services and you have pension liabilities built on a formerly large city. And so if you're looking for places where you're expecting to see crises, you should see either places where you can look at the political performance and be like, eh, that wasn't so good, but also places that are shrinking because shrinking is just a hard thing. To do, yeah. Um, I mean, it, you, you, in in your book, you have this sort of menu of solutions about how how states and localities can manage their their funds better, and it it's sort of funny in that some of these recommendations are the recommendations that come at the end of every book, like you know that they should they should permit more housing and they should loosen up occupational licensing and sort of you know the, these are you know Republicans and Democrats talk about these things and they're sort of they're, they're pro growth things, and certainly when you when you look at jurisdictions like New York and California, there's a lot of untapped growth potential there where if you just let people build homes then you're you're going to get not only population growth but you're going to get tax revenue growth and that sort of thing. That doesn't work in a lot of places in the Midwest though, right? So like what do you do if you're Cleveland? Uh, I mean it's a, it's an unbelievably difficult problem. And so if you're a Cleveland and you and you have these boom periods when you get like the the pressure is even greater for you to 
budget responsibly because there's no you know, light at the end of the rainbow in terms of just like, you know, you could think about New York and California as having like this huge excess capacity that they're just choosing not. But if you know you're not in that situation um, or, you know, you could either just hope for some fix. And one of the real uh, other real challenges, again, I, I what do you do if you're Cleveland? I'm about to talk about why Cleveland is even more screwed um, <laughs> than they would otherwise be. But it's... um when things start going badly on this front, it creates uh, political pressure to do crazier and crazier things. The same way that you see a bank in downspin, the investor, well, you know, the you know, it's a kind of a heads I win, tails you lose type phenomenon. You saw this in Detroit pretty dramatically. So Detroit, uh, I famously, um, near the end of its uh, of its time, the mayor entered into this unbelievably strange uh, uh, transaction, kind of modeled on Enron's transactions to avoid accounting <laughs> rules. The, the mayor eventually went to jail, but for something different. Um, of course. But it was such a weird transaction that uh, the bond buyer, which is the municipal bond newspaper, declared it the Midwest deal of the year. It's never a good sign if you're yeah. uh, winning Midwest Deal of the Year. Um, but it's a um, the story was that they were ju- he was just trying to hold on until it was someone else's problem, um, yeah. and that is a, a pretty dangerous dynamic. Well, I mean, you saw stuff like that in Chicago where they sold 75 years of parking meter revenue and basically blew through the money in three years just trying to close operating budget. Oh, gaps. I mean, that was crazy. Though that was that was the end of some. It's definitely the end of the Daly administration. That was like the he wanted to build some fancy stuff to, to kind of create a legacy, um, uh, and that was just a form of borrowing. And again, jurisdictions do lots of crazy stuff to borrow when they don't want to actually borrow. So my personal favorite is the state of Arizona sold its capital building um, and then entered into a lease and buyback arrangement. Wait, for what? The, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, really. really. It's a, they sold the capital building. And then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's again, it's one of these things you see a press release and the press release comes out and says, Arizona once again owns its own capital building. Um, yeah. But it was designed to deal with a short run budget deficit. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I sort of think of Rhode Island as the, the poster child for the, for this weird behavior, because I mean, Rhode Island actually has pretty average income, but it's surrounded by Connecticut and Massachusetts that have very high incomes. And so it has this a weaker tax base. It has the situation where it like simultaneously has higher taxes and lower government spending than Massachusetts. And so it's always sort of under the gun. And Rhode Island lawmakers have done a bunch of truly bizarre stuff over the years trying to build an an economic niche for themselves, including most famously lending $75 million to a video game studio owned by Kurt Schilling, um, who then defaulted on the debt. Yeah. Though there are also are Rhode Island is also one of your happy stories in some ways. So you have okay. the the Gina Raimondo pension reform, which was a means why anyone knows who Gina Raimondo is. This is, is the uh, Commerce Secretary. They did it. They, I mean, you call it a pension. Reform. It was basically a, a big cut in pension benefits, including a retroactive cut. You were talking about how states are not allowed to reduce pension benefits that were already promised. Rhode Island did that, and the state supreme court said they were allowed to do it. Well, the state supreme court kind of didn't rule on it. In the okay, end. that probably wouldn't have been allowed in any other state, or it was unclear whether it would have been allowed in any other state. Um, the other thing that they did that's really interesting, and this is a much more controversial, and well, they're both controversial, but um, they uh, created a legal tool which gave bondholders a um, what's called a statutory covenant. And the details of that are not super important, but the idea is that it put pe- bondholders ahead of pensioners in a bankruptcy. Huh. Um, and when Central Falls went bankrupt, which is a city in uh, Rhode Island, uh, it's the only, while in other bankruptcies, pensioners did much better than bondholders. So in Detroit, pensioners did much better than bondholders. In Puerto Rico, pensioners did much better. Rhode Island is the one state where bondholders did much better than pensioners. And the basic reason which they had passed this law, and they passed that law because they were so worried about um, like the whole 
thing going on, the whole state going under. And so I guess, why would you do that? The reason you would do that is because it reassures bondholders and therefore you get a lower interest rate when you go out to borrow for projects? They were worried that a default in the city would mean that people wouldn't lend to the state government, a problem we call contagion. And so they felt the need to reassure bondholders of this fact. And like that is a really extreme step because it limits your ability in a default to make, you know, which, you know, to kind of choose among your creditors, which you have some degree of control over. Is that the sort of thing that policymakers need to be thinking about at this point? Because I mean, again, I, you know, I sort of opened by noting that you talk a lot in your book about insolvencies and how to manage them. And you have these competing pressures. You, there's, there's pressure to bail out governments that become insolvent and that, you know, that, prevents turmoil in the bond markets, um, but it also creates moral hazard where it encourages irresponsible borrowing, or you can you can have the defaults and, and you know cram the cost down on the bondholders, but that might make it more expensive when you want to borrow to do useful things in the future. We were talking about this, you know, in the in the Great Recession. As people were talking about, you know, are we going to see this with with Illinois or Chicago? And we did see some some substantial municipal bankruptcies like Detroit and, and Stockton. Are you expecting, you know, in the on a five, 10 year time horizon, are we going to see some significant events like that? So I'm not a credit analyst. I'm not in the business of uh, of, of like making predictions about individual jurisdictions. But um, I have to say that the answer is yes. Um, I mean, I, I think the first place you'd imagine you'd see them is um, in some specialized special districts. So in your uh, in your transit districts or in your convention centers or things of that sort. We got really worried about these at the beginning of the pandemic, and then the general huge flow of funds stopped this. Um, and, you know, with that flow of funds stopped, I will see structurally whether things like the convention business or things like transit agencies are kind of structurally. Now, the other th- question is like, all defaults are um, are there. Some defaults are forced, but many are choices. So the state that, in the sense that, um, it's uh, the state is deciding not to bail out its cities. And in fact, state has to, state government first city to declare bankruptcy. A state has to directly authorize it to do so. You have to pass a law at the state level to say you can do this. And one of the questions that to ask are there going to be defaults? Are are states willing to do that? And that's a political question about their politics as much as it is about their fiscal condition. And so you have to ask questions about, like, in in a world where we see such uh, severe polarization between our states and cities, it's not hard for me to imagine a situation in which a state withdraws aid and in order to force an opposite party city to from to default. One of the more complicated and weirder defaults of the of the Great Recession year was Jefferson County in Alabama. Which is where and, Birmingham is located. Yeah, the details of that one are just like a monster. It involves the sewer system and the EPA. And I mean, but the one of the precipitating events was the state withdrawing and then refusing, or a court withdrawing, and the state refusing to give back the, the ability to pass a new tax to yeah. help fund. And like, that kind of a situation is also, I think, I think pretty plausible. And so that's, I mean, Jefferson County being a, a heavily Democratic county in a, in a heavily Republican state. Yeah. When, when people talk about this this sort of cascading effect where you have, you know, a municipality or even an, an agency in great fiscal difficulty in a state that decides not to provide it support. You can you can have those sorts of political disputes. People talk a lot about Illinois, though. And the concern about Illinois is that, as you described, it's, you, you have a number of these pretty fiscally weak entities, the city of Chicago, Cook County. But then it's also a state with an unusually poor fiscal position. I mean, unlike, you know, New York has, you know, we, we have a lot of trouble here in New York, but the New York has done relatively well in terms of funding our, our pension benefits, for example. And so the 
the state, the state actually, level, yeah. Yeah, at the, at the state level. So the state is, we, we have a pretty strong fiscal condition at the state. That is not the case in Illinois. And you've had bizarre budgeting practices in Illinois for decades, where literally the state manages, it, it's, it's actually kind of similar to the debt limit stuff at the federal level, where the state runs out of ability to spend, and so it just doesn't send money to Medicaid providers, makes hospital systems lend the state money for months and months and months. And so couldn't you have a situation in Illinois where the, the state lacked the fiscal wherewithal to provide the sort of bailout that you would might have political pressure for? Yeah, sure. I mean, so again, there is enough wealth in Illinois to pay off the debts of Illinois. The question is, again, it will be, it is in some ways a political determination about whether, and, but that political determination is sometimes limited by state law. So there's a question, for instance, in Illinois, can they pass a progressive income tax? They can't, and they'd have to, you know. Um, but if you think about Illinois more broadly, to include the voters, not just the politicians, um, right. there are real, very, very severe fiscal pressures on a jurisdiction like Illinois. Um, and one of the difficulties when you ha- think about Illinois' relationship to a place like Chicago is on one hand, you see things like you saw in Rhode Island, where they're extremely worried about fiscal pressure at lower levels of government because they think that the bond market will punish everyone in Illinois. This contagion problem will just say everyone in like, Illinois is just off our radar. And so that's one type of thing that would encourage aid. On the other hand, they're in a real crisis. They, they don't want to be the one that default. They want to be able to blame someone else. Um, and that dynamic can happen at multiple levels. Can you have many levels of government? And so, for instance, Chicago, the city of Chicago and the school district, which the mayor uh, until very recently appointed the head of, are covering the exact same territory. They tax the same tax base. But they are different governments, and one can default and the other didn't. And if, if that sounds weird to you, in Detroit, the city defaulted, but the state completely bailed out the school district. And so while teachers got 100% of their pensions, police hmm. officers and firefighters didn't. And like, well, what's with that? That doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. And what is the role for the federal government here? I mean, I assume one thing is, you know, don't give like random excessive bailouts to states when they don't actually need them. Like that's one of the lessons about ARP <laughs> back in yeah. 2020. We'd also have fewer fewer federal budget problems and fewer inflation problems if we hadn't done that. What can the federal government do going forward to basically help states, help localities make good choices and actually be able to use their revenues to, to best serve their constituents? Yeah. So one of the things is that they could have created conditions on that money. And we could still create conditions because there's a lot of money going to the federal government to states that could encourage better practices. And so one example I give in when New York City went through its fiscal crisis, one of the state's conditions that it put on the variety of structure was that New York City uh, account in uh, accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, the GAAP. Um, and we could tie a principle that you do that to the ability to get income tax exempt interest payments on your municipal bonds to say you have to follow certain basic accounting rules when in order to access, um, to get the benefits that the federal government gives to a municipal debt. And and then I, I guess one one last thing that, that, that you had in, in your recommendations is basically rebalancing certain obligations between states and, and the federal government. That because the federal government can can borrow in order to you know get through economic cycles, certain highly cyclical things like like entitlement programs should be you know more of that obligation should be shifted over toward the federal government. Yeah. So I think this would have a couple of benefits. So this is like in the spirit. Medicaid, I, I think we're mostly talking about here. Yeah. In the spirit of the famous Reagan compromise to shift some things to the federal government and some things to the state government, and this would have some some benefits for democracy also, like you know who to blame 
um, for different things having. But the the basic idea is that state budgets are, and local budgets have this very weird feature, which is they're pro-cyclical. Because they have to keep balanced budget, requir- balanced budget requirements and limits on how much debt they can issue, when they have more money, they can spend more money. And when times are bad, they have to cut. That's exactly the opposite of what kind of, you know textbook Keynesianism would suggest. They're cutting spending during recessions. And that's bad. Um, and we saw how bad this was during the Great Recession, which is one of the reasons the Great Recession was so great. Um, is uh, as opposed to just being kind of the bad recession, is um, is that state and local governments um, uh, fired so many workers. We didn't see state and local employment go back up to where it was pre two thousand eight until twenty nineteen. So like it was a really long time. Um, and removing some of these uh, kind of core social welfare services from state budgets, um, while maybe giving back certain other responsibilities, would both improve democracy and improve macroeconomic performance. Why don't we leave it there for this week? David Schleicher's new book is called In a Bad State. He's a professor at Yale Law School. Besides state and local debt, David's an expert in election law, land use, and urban development. And he hosts a legal theory podcast called Dicking a Hole. Thank you, David. Thank you. As always, we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. And I await your questions. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Again, I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back soon. <laughs>